Welcome back to Until It's Fixed Season 2, where we look at pressing topics in the healthcare industry, new approaches to care, and how to make the health system work better for all of us. I'm Stacy Dove. And I'm Kelly Chamberlain. Last episode, we talked about health literacy, the ability for patients to access, understand, and use information to make decisions about their health. And today, we're going to be looking at substance use in America. This will be referenced throughout the episode as SUD, which stands for Substance Use Disorder. So as many of us have probably read, seen, and heard, substance use is, in fact, on the rise. This trend was exacerbated by the pandemic as many people began working remotely, and natural, everyday barriers like driving into the office were eliminated. Yeah, that's right, Stacey. I recently read something by the CDC that said drug overdose deaths reached an all-time high with over 90,000 deaths in 2020, and 13% of adults reported new or increased substance use during the pandemic. So with millions of Americans struggling with increased substance use and the need for SUD treatment rising, how can the health system use innovative solutions to expand access to treatment? So to answer this question, I had the privilege of sitting down with Janelle Weslow from the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation, along with Deb Nussbaum from Optum. Both gave really helpful insight as to what their organizations are doing. So before we get started, I would love to have each of you introduce yourselves and if you could talk a little bit about how you actually entered into this profession of substance use disorder and what your passion is around it. Janelle, do you want to start? I'm Janelle Westlow. I am the Vice President of Clinical Excellence, Innovation, and Recovery Management at the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation. I've been in the field of substance use disorder treatment for close to 30 years And the reason I started in the field was when I was an adolescent, I uh, had a few behaviors and experiences that were uh, less than optimal. I got into a bit of trouble uh, and had some unhealthy experiences with substance use at that time. And I had a counselor in my high school that kind of took me under his wing and really helped me out, helped me start to think more about the choices I was making and to help me reach my potential. And so when I was in college, um, when I saw that there was a, a field called chemical dependency counseling, it was just like a light bulb went off over my head. And I said, maybe I could help adolescents and young adults the way I was helped. And that's what started me down that path. And every class I took and every experience I had just cemented that decision in wanting to help those that were struggling with substance use disorders. Great. Thank you. Deb? Hi, I'm Deb Nussbaum. I am with Optum. I have been leading Optum's National Substance Use Disorder Initiatives since 2013. Um, I actually came to Optum in 2010 as a clinical director, but when we started to see the comeback of heroin, I moved into my national role because of my background. So getting to my background, I've actually been in addiction treatment uh, since the 1980s. I went to SUNY of Stony Brook and I took a course called behavioral psychology. And the teacher was promoting this new uh, credential um, that you could get. And it was an addictions counselor. And he was actually very heavily into addiction treatment. He was so passionate and he was so motivated that I got an internship with him and I was placed 
in a short-term detoxification center out on Long Island. Um, I'll never forget. It was Community Hospital of Western Suffolk. And that's what started me on my, um, my road to getting into addictions treatment. Um, that was the very beginning of my career. And um, I've never left. I think the population is great to work with. And addiction treatment can be very rewarding. So if you could tell our listeners a little bit about Hazelden Betty Ford along with Optum, that would be great. So I'll talk a little bit about the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation, starting with our mission statement, which I think really says a lot about why we're here. We are a force of healing and hope for individuals, families, and communities affected by addiction to alcohol and other drugs. So that is our mission. And the way we carry that out is we are the largest nonprofit addiction treatment provider in the country with 17 physical locations in the United States and currently operating in approximately 20 states. That changes as we are growing and doing things virtually. Beginning in 1949, we've been offering prevention, treatment, and recovery solutions across an entire continuum of substance use disorder and mental health care for youth and adults. But we also have a graduate school of addiction studies, a research center, a publishing division, an external professional training and consulting arm, as well as providing advocacy for the addiction field to help ensure the reduction of stigma, to influence and support policy and regulations that impact those needing treatment and those in recovery. Thank you. And Deb, can you tell us a little bit about Optum Behavioral Health? Optum Behavioral provides insurance coverage and benefits to people who are in need of mental health or substance use care. That could look like anything from providing access to self-help tools or helping members find a therapist that may offer virtual services, all the way to the other end of the spectrum where we're connecting members to evidence-based residential treatment uh, for a substance use disorder within our uh, network of providers. Great. That's very helpful. I'd like to ground us in just, you know, talking a little bit about different terminologies and substance use disorder and how we ended up there versus some that may have been more stigmatized. So do you have any comments on that, Janelle? Well, I do. I know a term that has been very commonly used that we discourage use of now is is the word substance abuse. Uh, it is a stigmatizing term. We don't use that for any other chronic medical conditions such as a substance use disorder. Um, and it does have a very negative connotation. You generally don't hear the word abuse and think of anything positive or anything helpful. And you think of something that's happening to somebody that's violent or, you know, and that, you know, definitely doesn't go along with a medical or behavioral health issue. If you think about some of that uh, terminology, calling someone who has a substance use disorder an addict. Now, many people who have substance use disorders attend 12-step self-help groups and will identify themselves as an addict. And that's different. Um, but having someone in the medical community using a stigmatizing term like addict is not as helpful. So having more inclusive terminology, even in other chronic illnesses, we don't, you know, instead of saying diabetic, you're a person with diabetes. Instead of saying you're an addict, I'm a person with a substance use disorder. So using person first language and trying to really minimize that stigmatizing language can only be helpful. There were people who used to avoid getting substance use disorder treatment because of the stigma attached to it. And there still are. Hopefully, you know, some of the things that we've done to try to lower the stigma and open up the access to care has helped with that, but it's still an ongoing battle, which is why we have a center for advocacy to help with some of that, to make sure that when legislation is being crafted that talks about how to help people that have substance use disorders or in recovery, that we're not using that stigmatizing language, that we're not using those old assumptions 
assumptions and using the science and using what we know today to be true about a brain disease that is a chronic disorder. Um, but that's been a shift over time. And also as someone who maybe is not sure if they're struggling with this or not, or might need help and they're not sure what to do, to hear language that's less stigmatizing might open that door a little wider to say, maybe I'll make that first call. Right. I think that is such helpful education for so many of us because we may inadvertently use some of those terms that are stigmatizing and may turn someone off from treatment. You know, Deb, I think it actually helps from an empathy perspective to have a better understanding of how someone gets to the point where they have a substance use disorder. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, We really can't say who it's going to affect. Now, we do know that persons that struggle with chronic mental health issues have a higher prevalence of developing a substance use disorder. But if we're really talking about just, you know, normal person who one day, very innocently, maybe during their adolescence is at a party and someone offers them a drug, And um, I've actually had this explained to me by some of my patients um, during groups is that once they have tried that drug, they have felt like their life has been completed. They have felt so good, so powerful that they didn't even know that they had a missing hole in them and that that particular drug that they tried made them feel complete, made them feel so powerful that that's all they wanted to do. Now, we can go back in a person's history and we could see that there was nothing aberrant in their history, that there was no family history, no genetic component. It was just something that occurred. Um, We can't test for it. We can't put someone in an MRI and we can't say, this is where you are leading which is why the the prevention component of substance use disorder is so important because there are just too many variables. Um, A person can try cocaine and and hate it, hate it, hate it. But then when they have that first drink, that first uh, drink or or taste of alcohol, and it it just feels so right to them, my warning is that it could happen to anyone. It's a disease that can come on. We can't predict or forecast, although there are certain people that have a predisposition, but prevention is the key. Never start, and then you will never have to have that experience. I've heard it explained as an equal opportunity disease. It does not discriminate across socioeconomic. And, you know, the families just really tend to beat themselves up about this is what did we do wrong? How could this happen, especially when it's their child? How could this happen in our family? You know, we try to do everything right. Um, And so I really like how Deb explains that there definitely are factors that can make it more prevalent, but there are many, many people who find themselves facing substance use disorder that don't have those factors. Like Deb explains that there, you know, sometimes for those people, the first time they ever use that substance, whatever it is, it may be the first time they've ever felt normal in their life. Somehow all of a sudden I feel like I fit in or where's this been all my life? The unfortunate thing is, is generally it doesn't stay that way. And they tend to chase that normalcy for years to come until they get to a point where they, you know, need to make some, you know, decisions or someone makes decisions for them about needing to address 
what's now become a substance use disorder. So it's difficult for the family. It's difficult for the person. It's difficult for everybody around them. So I really appreciate the way Deb explained that. Yes, thank you. That was really helpful. Can you also talk to us a little bit about the range of substance use disorders that people may experience? And in addition to that, what are some of the treatment options that are available today? Sure, sure. Well, I think the number one issue is alcohol use disorder. It has been followed the last at least seven years by opioid use disorder. Many uh, younger folks suffer with opioid use disorder. They might have gotten addicted, uh, you know, based upon their use of pain pills, either their own or, or someone else's. And unfortunately, once the access to the pain pills are no longer available, they have been moving over to uh, street heroin and other street medications. The next category is really stimulants. Um, we've been seeing stimulants on the rise. We see a lot of methamphetamine uh, use disorders still a fair amount of cocaine use disorder. We've been seeing more uh, folks suffering with use of marijuana interfering with their lives. As far as treatment goes, we try to match the type of treatment to the most uh, successful level of care. So with alcohol use disorder, we always want to make sure that the person is medically stable, and that might involve a medical stay, that might involve a medical detox, a detoxification stay. And then, of course, the other treatment options include residential, you know, which is actually going to uh, live at a treatment center like at, at Hazleton Betty Ford for a period of time to kind of settle everything down that might be going on in the family and uh, really uh, understanding what the person's treatment needs are. We also have outpatient options. And for methamphetamine and for cannabis use and other stimulant use, people can start treatment in the lowest levels, the outpatient services. We have intensive outpatient services. It really depends on what the person has tried, what's worked, what hasn't worked, what their support system looks like. That's why we have to have a full continuum of care available to members. And it has to be very unique to that person's needs and what they have already experienced in treatment. So one of the things that we hear about is risk or harm reduction rather than abstinence. Can you explain the differences in the approach and how this could be helpful for patients? Sure. Um, as you look at meeting a person where they're at in that moment, there are times where, let's say, a person doesn't have a safe living environment or they may not be able to have a steady source of food or shelter. In those cases, harm reduction becomes key to make sure the person is safe prior to having a focus on other behavioral health issues, ensuring their safety and stability becomes primary in that moment. Also, there are people who might be experiencing difficulties or problems in their lives that might not be ready to hear a message of abstinence as a path to recovery. So the point at which they're willing to engage is all about exploring how their use may, you know, might be harming their lives, their relationships, their job. So starting with that message of how can we help you with what you see the problem as can lead to the ability to do further assessment and intervention. And then you can determine the path that's most appropriate together, which may or may not be treatment. It may be other methodologies to help them stabilize or to do more exploration or education on how those substances are impacting their lives and how they can um, reduce or eliminate that in their life. Now, somebody with a severe substance use disorder, 
you know, that's likely not going to be a path that's going to be sustainable for them. But really meeting someone where they are at that moment is the key to engaging them and then creating the access to whatever services they might be um, ready to accept and able to accept based on, you know, what other issues are going on in their lives how our field used to be long, long ago is that everyone that called us on the phone, we were like, well, you must need treatment if you picked up the phone to call us. Not understanding the science that we know now and using evidence-based practices such as motivational interviewing, where you help people understand what is it that you need help with right now and want help with right now and how can I help you meet that? And that opens the door to the next step, to the next step, to the next step. There's so many paths and we need to be open to meeting people on whatever path they're on and then act as a guide or a coach to help them understand more about what's going on with themselves to get them to the amount of care they need based on their symptoms, based on their progress that we use to make sure that people get the right care for what is happening in their lives at that moment. Kelly, the theme that I continue to hear that resonates with me in not just this episode on substance use disorder, but also in some of our other episodes on health literacy, health equity, is really around meeting people where they are and giving them the personalized care because it really is so individual. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I really appreciated the way that Janelle was talking about the care that's provided and rethinking different expectations to do exactly what you're saying, which is to meet people where they're at, to recognize how that might be intersecting with their ability to live somewhere really safe or to have access to the other types of things that they need to stay healthy. The other thing that really struck me was it feels like they're doing it in such a human way. There's not a lot of shame. It's just sort of seeing them as full, complex, dynamic human human beings. I couldn't agree more. And you know, this, I just think life in general teaches us all to be more empathetic and to give ourselves and others grace. And, you know, I just, I was reflecting about how when I was in high school, I remember I pretty much stayed on the path that, you know, you're so-called supposed to. And I remember looking down on people who use drugs. And now I just think, shame on me for for thinking like that because really now when i see and know people with substance use disorders it's really because of a lot of different reasons that you know janelle and deb have talked about yeah it really is so complex so i love that you're reflecting on your own experiences i'm definitely doing the same thing to sort of reframe how we think about this issue and the people that it impacts In the second half of the conversation, I know you talked about resources and changes in care that were brought on by the pandemic. Let's listen in. What advice would you have for loved ones of those with substance use disorder? And, you know, it's very prevalent and obvious to them. However, the person with it talking about meeting them where they're at, they're not ready. They're not ready for treatment. They don't want treatment. Talk a little bit about intervention and the success or not of that, um, if you wouldn't mind. I'd love to. 
Interventions have changed a lot over the years. They used to be a very much of a hot seat kind of thing where you'd put a person in a in a room and everyone would kind of come at them and it was very overwhelming and, and I believe not as effective. Current day interventions are much more caring, much more loving, really helping the person understand how their behaviors are affecting you as their family members and not necessarily always just honing in on the substance use, just more the behaviors that that substance use is causing in their life to talk about how that's affecting you as a family family member. So I think that's a, a good thing to know is that, you know, if a family is looking for an interventionist to make sure that you're looking for someone who uses those loving and more, I think, appropriate tactics to help the person understand that I'm not just coming to you saying you need to stop using. I'm coming to you saying what's happening to you is affecting me and I just can't see it keep going on this way. So we need to do something different and then giving them some options for what that different might look like. So I think that's really important. Uh, and I think you bring up a great point is that the families are just as affected by this as the person who's using the substances. So making sure that the treatment provider that you are seeking out has services for the family is really key because the family needs a lot of support, education, and to know how to set good boundaries, how to lovingly intervene, how to lovingly interact with someone who's in this initial stage of trying to figure out, do I have a problem? What do I need? One thing I've mentioned to a lot of people recently is, especially since the pandemic, there's a lot more virtual options for people to utilize. And at Hazel and Betty Ford, um, pre-pandemic, uh, we had a family program that was three days long. You'd come onto campus and it's, it's an amazing program. And someday we will have it again, but it will be part of a continuum that we can offer to families where now we have a free one-day family program that's completely virtual that's offered, I believe, every day except Sunday. And so at different time zones, so whatever works for the family, where they can spend a day learning about how to interact with somebody who has a substance use disorder who may or may not be ready for treatment or getting any help. And it helps them understand kind of what that person's going through, help normalize what they're going through as a family member, give them some tactics, techniques to set boundaries and to interact in a way that can hopefully decrease the chaos they're experiencing because that is very chaotic to have an untreated person with substance use disorder in your home. Um, so how do I keep myself sane during this time? Very important. And the boundary setting is really key because the person does not need to be held hostage by the person in their life who has an untreated substance use disorder. There are boundaries that can be set very clearly with consequences for those boundaries not being respected to ensure that the loved ones in their lives can say, you know what, I love you, but these behaviors are not okay. And this is what's acceptable and this is what's not. And if we keep having these unacceptable behaviors, this is what needs to happen because we can't have this in our home. And that's very difficult, um, but can be done in a loving way. And it can be one of the hardest things a parent or a family member ever does is to set those boundaries and then follow through with them because it can be extremely painful and feel like you know, I'm abandoning this person or I'm not doing the things to keep them safe. But sometimes in doing those things, we're enabling them to keep the addiction to continue to take hold and go farther down the path to where there is going to be a crisis that hopefully is, you know, we're able to come back from, but that isn't always the case. So setting up things in their lives that don't make it as easy to continue in that way, to maybe force the issue a little bit in a loving way to help say, let's get some help. Let's figure this out. Let's make that call. Let's do some research together and figure out what we need to do to move forward because this can't continue the way it is because it just isn't tenable for the family. 
The family program that you mentioned, Janelle, sounds like an amazing resource for folks who may be struggling with this. And to your comment about it being available virtually, is that happening for substance use disorder treatment as well? And how has that evolved over the last year and a half since the pandemic began? Well, fortunately, there are virtual substance use disorder treatments available. Interestingly, we've been piloting virtual intensive outpatient treatment prior to the pandemic. And we actually just been ready to launch a communication about it like two weeks before the pandemic really hit. Um, so really, we were fortunate um, that we were able to respond so quickly and immediately in the pandemic to switch to virtual. And we actually moved approximately 1,500 patients from in-person intensive outpatient to virtual intensive outpatient in the space of a week. Luckily, we had that infrastructure all set up and ready to go. Um, so that was really critical because during the pandemic, people are still crying out for good care. And so we wanted to make sure we could still provide it. In terms of virtual uh, treatments effectiveness, luckily we have our own Butler Center for Research and they're currently doing analysis and studies to answer questions about virtual substance use treatment, including if virtual services are comparable or provide comparable outcomes to those receiving in-person care and for whom does virtual services work best. So we're following 3,706 people and have preliminary data that indicate evidence that virtual intensive outpatient is as effective as in-person intensive outpatient treatment. And interestingly, those that are in virtual intensive outpatient are able to attend more sessions with a lower no-show rate than those in person. The data also confirms that patients attending virtually have a reduction in um, what we call the geographic barrier, which suggests that it's more accessible to those living farther away that might not have otherwise been able or willing to come a longer distance for programming. So our early data and early outcomes um, analysis looks very promising to show an equivalency between virtual and in-person services. And that's really what we're looking for. It doesn't have to be better. We're just looking for something that's equivalent and that provides the excellent care that our patients expect. And that's what we're seeing so far. And um, prior to the pandemic, Optum had a 1.1% utilization of virtual services in behavioral health. During the pandemic, we went up to 87% virtual utilization in behavioral health. We received during one month, 18,000 applications for virtual provider attestations. It took a pandemic to get people over the hump, over their fear of technology to utilize virtual behavioral health services. But there are also a large amount of people that still want that option of being seen, you know, just having that live interaction. So I think where we're heading is to that hybrid model where we want to give people the virtual option. We want to give people the in-person option and any combination thereof in the new world. We're seeing that as well, that the increased demand for flexibility, you know, really looking at the future of hybrid models that give patients the choice about how, when, and where they receive their care. Also more resources on demand, um, including, you know, increasing the utilization of technology to expand and increase our reach, our engagement, which we then believe positively impacts outcomes. So Deb, um, speaking of access, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the barriers to access for people who are trying to seek care for substance use disorder and how those barriers might be 
broken down today? Sure. Well, I think that um, one of the barriers that I see is kind of seeking care in the wrong places. We want to make sure that when people are ready to seek care, that they're going to a trusted resource, a place that is well-known, that has good treatment outcomes, and that is doing evidence-based care. I would always recommend that when someone is looking for good care, go to a trusted resource. I think what Deb is mentioning is so important to make sure that you can find a quality, ethical, legitimate provider, especially during this time of crisis where someone can seem really great, but how do you know? So really, I think, you know, reaching out to your your insurance company, um, talking to your primary provider, you know, I'll even just put in a shameless plug for the org website. There's tons of resources out there. There's an article about there, how to find a good treatment provider. We're happy to share that. And that's what it's all about is just getting started. You know, reach out to get that help that's needed because there is help, there is hope. And so there's so many people that are suffering from this, but people do recover and live happy, healthy, joyous lives. And that's what we all want. Thank you so much. That is such a positive note to end on. Janelle Wesloff and Deb Nussbaum, appreciate your time. As discussed today, we know that stigma persists with substance use disorder and addiction treatment. Unfortunately, myself, like so many people, have had firsthand experience with substance use disorder in my family. And we just think it's really important to have these conversations to help ease that stigma and let people know there's care available to meet them where they're at. And a range of treatments mean that people can find the level of care that's right for them and their situation. And it can feel more of like a spectrum that people can walk into and sort of wrap the supports around them that they need versus feeling like they don't fit within the box and therefore don't seek any help at all. The ability to access care from home and virtually can also help to alleviate the fear that some people may feel about going somewhere or receiving treatment in person. And so in general, I think all of these conversations are really helpful because improved education can help with early detection and intervention, talking about things like we're doing around stigma, all of this, of course, in service of the ultimate goal, which is helping people before they reach a tipping point. That's right. And there are resources available and accessing treatment from the comfort of your home, as you mentioned, Callie, or your cell phone has never been more convenient. So please check out our show notes for links to the programs that Janelle Weslow spoke about and other resources if either you or a loved one is struggling. And join us next time as we talk about ways we can better connect healthcare management for chronic conditions like diabetes. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Stacy Dove. And I'm Callie Chamberlain. This is Until It's Fixed, a healthcare innovation podcast from Opto.